Good morning, guys. Res kids, you all are dismissed to go to class. Ushers, as soon as they uh, vacate the, not premises, they're not leaving, they're going upstairs. Vacate the aisles, you can come forward for our morning tithes and offerings. This morning, we're continuing our series through the book of Exodus, and we're going to be in chapters 5 and 6 again. Like last week, we uh, sort of bit off a really, really big chunk of the text, and we'll do the same thing again this week. 6 contains a genealogy that's significant, but we're not going to delve into that at at much depth. And so we're going to look sort of at chapter 5 and chapter 6, because I think there's a a relationship uh, between chapter 5 and 6, between disappointment and the promise of God. So the title of the sermon this morning is Disappointment and the Promise of God. So to catch you up to speed briefly, Moses has encountered God Uh, Despite his questions, his struggles, and his lack of willingness, he has gone to Egypt, and he is beginning the process, right, of leading God's people out of slavery. At the end of chapter 4, things are going pretty well. Moses has gotten to Egypt. He's linked up with Aaron. They've performed signs in front of the people that they may see God's authority is with him. The people believed that God was acting to save them. They bowed their heads in worship. At the end of chapter 4, verse 31, we can see, And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. <clears throat> chapter 4 ends with this sort of um, this holy moment, this, this moment of preparation for what is to come. I sort of picture a, a locker room where David is about to go and beat Goliath. It's the upset of all upsets, and they think they have the secret weapon to defeat their massive foe. I sense a collective calmness and a sense of unity as God's people are gathering, and they're getting ready to begin this process that they believe Moses has, has come to them to initiate. And so at this point of the text, we expect this ever-increasing escalator of progress, but that's not what we get in chapter 5, right? We hear that phrase so often, let my people go. And when Moses first utters those words, let my people go, Pharaoh simply says no. In fact, he makes their lives even more miserable than they were. And just as Moses has gained his people's trust, then he begins to lose it. The experience we see Moses have this morning, I think, is not unlike the experience that we have in the path of obedience. I think as Christians, we expect our lives to be this ever-increasing escalator of success, this ever-increasing escalator of progress. But sometimes we fall face first on the escalator, if you will, and get stuck at the bottom. Sometimes we take 10 steps forward and 11 steps backwards. Sins we thought we had kicked come back with a vengeance. Old wounds we thought were healed break open. Bitterness that has lied dormant seeps back into your heart. Or maybe in your Christian experience, you're in a season of victory over sin. Maybe sin issues aren't popping up too much. Maybe you're actually doing well. Perhaps you're in active recovery and seeing victory over those things. Perhaps you're becoming becoming more regular in your church attendance. Perhaps you've joined the church. Perhaps you've joined a discipleship group. Perhaps you're going to a Bible study. Things are going well. You're putting in all these inputs for God, and you expect outputs to follow, but then you get sick. Then you lose your job. Then a family member dies unexpectedly or painfully. 
You're doing what God wants you to be doing, but he's not giving you what you want him to be giving you. Your reality is painful. Every day is not sweeter than the last. I think of growing up hearing uh, Southern Gospel songs. It was, uh, there would be this phrase, you know, every day is sweeter than the last. I don't remember the song. Some of you may know it. And I, even as like an eight-year-old, I was a skeptical kid, man. That's, I was rough. You know, I was a guy. I never went to children's church. I sat there and listened to the pastor, you know, and, I, and, and I'd hear that song, and I'd be like, I don't, that's not even true of my eight years, right? Every day is not sweeter than the last. And in my brief existence still, I, I've gotten the sense that in a, some sense, life can get hard. What do you do when those times come? What do you do when you're doing what God wants you to do, but things aren't going your way? What do you do when life is really, really difficult, what do you do in the muck and mire of unmet expectations? What do you do in seasons of deep disappointment where things haven't gone the way you thought they would go, whether relationally, financially, socially, or what have you? I think the answer is in our text today. I think we get through those seasons by believing the promises of God. I believe the promises of God sustain us through seasons of trial and suffering. I believe that future glory is the reward of present suffering. And I think we can embrace present suffering. We can embrace the realities of our boring lives, knowing who God is, what God's done, and what God promises he will do. Look with me in Exodus chapter 5. In all of chapter 5, you can subtitle in our narrative, right, from bad to worse. From bad to worse. The text begins afterward. Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, right? They're coming out of the locker room, so to speak. Now they're coming out ready to go. All God's people have, they've humbled themselves. They've worshiped God. They've realized their need for deliverance. Their leader has come. They're ready to submit to his leadership. Moses and Aaron go to the Pharaoh and say, thus says the Lord, right? The God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who? Who is the Lord? Who is this God you speak of, right? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Remember, Pharaoh was the God king, right? Who is this God that you speak of, Pharaoh says, knowing good and well in his own mind that he is God? Who's your God that I should listen to him? Last I checked, Pharaoh says, I'm God and king around here. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. I don't know him. Never heard of him. Sean McVay, never heard of him, right? I've never heard of the Lord. I've never heard of this God that you are speaking of. Why would I be afraid of him? Why would I think he poses any serious threat to me? I won't let this happen. I will not let you go. Verse 3. Then they said to Pharaoh again, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. We see this simmering conflict already the beginning that will boil over over the next several 
chapters. What is the essence of the request? The essence of the request is that God's people would be uh, sent out to worship God, right? Let us have a feast in the wilderness. Let us go and sacrifice. Let us go and initiate these uh, worship rites that we will uh, dedicate to our God. They request to go and worship their God. The Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know this guy. You can't go. Right, there is this uh, question of allegiance. There's this question of authority that is sort of in its uh, fledgling state. Whose wrath will Moses and Aaron fear more? Will they be too afraid of Pharaoh to ask that they can go? Or will they be too afraid of God? And so they must go to Pharaoh and ask if his people could go. Rightly, they choose to request that Pharaoh would let God's people go. But as you can see, Pharaoh sees this act of worship as a distraction from what really matters. And what really matters to him is work. He says, the people of Israel, these people are great across this land now. And why would I let all of them leave? They are a crucial part of our economy. We rely on them. We need them. It would be counterintuitive for me to let them go and do whatever it is you want them to do. So your answer is no. But Pharaoh doesn't stop there. It's not only no, but it's absolutely not. And in verses 6 through 9, Pharaoh commands the foreman. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foreman, these sort of middle management type guys who are, uh, of, you know, who are Israelites that have been set over the people. He commands them, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. They're lazy. Therefore they cry, let's go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to their lying words. The command, the request, whatever you want to call it, of Moses and Aaron has unintended consequences. Pharaoh is absolutely incensed and insulted by it, and he lashes out. Essentially, he says, we're going to make them do the sorts of things they've always had to do, except we're going to make it ten times harder. We're going to limit the resources with which they can do their job, but we still expect them to do their job at the same rate we've always expected them Two, the Pharaoh's ruling is heavy-handed, it is vindictive, and he is acting in a way that's flexing on the people of Israel. Verse 10, so the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh. I think there's some uh, literary stuff happening here, right? Thus says the Lord, thus says Pharaoh. There's this conflict developing. Thus says the Lord, thus says Pharaoh. Who is going to have his word stand? Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. The taskmaster said to the people, you have to do what you've always done. I know it's going to be hard, but you have to do it. Maybe they were so urgent because they knew if they didn't do it, Pharaoh would come down on them. Verse 14, and the foreman of the people of Israel whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? And so they come to Pharaoh in verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. 
And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. This is why you say, let's go and sacrifice to the Lord. Pharaoh's going back to that because that is what has driven him crazy. Saying, you're lazy, you're lazy, you want to worship God, and this is what you're going to get. You have earned this because you're not living for me, you're living for someone else. The foremen of the people saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. Verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron. (laughs) How would you like to be Moses and Aaron right now? Who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. How'd it go? Funny you ask, right? (laughs) The Lord look on you and judge you, they say to Moses and Aaron. May you face judgment for this. Because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. Yeah, man, you thought this was bad before. He hates us. And not only does he use us now, but he uses us and he hates us. He's furious about your request. He's making our lives absolutely miserable, and there's no sign that he's going to relent. I hope God judges you for this, Moses and Aaron. I hope you realize what you've done. You've ruined our standing with Pharaoh. You've made us stink in his sight. And you guys have put a sword in their hand with which to kill us. Then Moses turns to the Lord in verse 22 and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to his people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Let's set the stage for us, right? The middle management folk are pushing the Israelites to work harder. These same people are beaten for lack of output. These terrible jobs have gotten even more terrible. They cry out to Pharaoh to no avail. Then they turn on Moses and Aaron. You guys have done this. You've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh. You've put a sword in their hand to kill us. It's your fault, Moses and Aaron. You got us into this. We never would have done this on our own. If you never would have come, this never would have happened. I think there's a case study on leadership here. This is the part of leadership that no one likes. Moses has done exactly what God has told him to do, and it didn't work. Now... He's the most hated man in Egypt among his people and among Pharaoh's. He's like, he's kind of like the kid in class who gets everyone else in trouble, right? He's, he's, he's public enemy number one. Moses has taken this chance. He's taken this risk. He's stepped out in obedience to God as an 80-year-old shepherd out in the wilderness, right? And he's failed. And Moses goes to God with his questions. I I think if we're going to give Moses some credit here, at least he doesn't grumble to other people. At least he goes straight to God with his questions. And I think ultimately in his questioning, he's asking two things. The first thing he's asking is this. Why are you letting this happen? He's questioning God's goodness. Why are you letting this happen? If you're so good, why is Pharaoh coming down so hard on these people? Why are their lives so miserable? Like, you said you saw this, right? You said their groans have come up to you, and now you've sent me to deliver you. Yet here I am, doing what you've told me to do, and their groans are even louder, and their circumstances are even bleaker. Why are you letting this happen? Moses is questioning God's goodness, and he's also questioning God's purpose. 
why did you send me? Why did you send me? Like, why did you come to me at the burning bush? Why did we have that encounter? Why did I come all this way? Why are you letting this happen? Why did you send me? If you're so good, why are these people struggling so much? If you sent me to be here and do this, then I did it, and it's just made everything worse. Obeying God for Moses has not garnered any short-term results. And I think the heart of the question Moses is asking is a question that many of us, if we're honest, have asked of God at some point in our lives, and perhaps you're asking it this morning. God, why am I here? And what am I doing? Why am I here in Charleston, West Virginia, of all places, a city that's losing population, right? Why do I have this job I have? Why do I have these relationships I have? Why am I, why am I in this scenario as a whole that I'm in, right? And why is the suffering and the struggle and the difficulty not just fixed if you love me, right? If you love me and you see me and you know all my needs and you're all-powerful, then why aren't my needs being met by this all-powerful God? It's a question you might be afraid to ask, but it's a question internally you have certainly asked. And I think it's important to note that God just doesn't answer his questions. God doesn't say, well, let me tell you, Moses, why I called you one more time. Right. Sit down, Moses. Let me, let me explain to you what I'm, you know, all of the answers to your question. Let me tell you about my purpose for the whole world and how you fit into that. No, God doesn't answer his question. He does something better. He tells him who he is, and he tells him what he's going to do. He tells him who he is, and he tells him what he's going to do. Perhaps for some of you, obeying God has not garnered many short-term results. How do we deal with the disappointment then? Let's look in chapter 6 and find an answer. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. We talked about that extensively last week. Verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Verse 4, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my Covenant. God reminds Moses who he is. He says, I'm the Lord. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. I appeared to them as God Almighty. I appeared to them as the all-powerful one. But God is saying to Moses, I appear to you as I am. I appear to you relationally. I will be for you enough to get you through all that lies before you. I am who I am, and I am enough, essentially, the Lord says. God names himself in relation to his people. I am the God who will be your God. God promises adoption, that they will become his people, and God will be theirs. Finally, I will bring you into the land and give it to you as a possession. I will give you an inheritance. 
All these are all themes of the New Testament, are they not? Liberation, redemption, adoption, inheritance. Liberation you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment, right? Jesus receives the punishment that we deserve, and through one great act of judgment, God has redeemed all of his people. Adoption is certainly a part of our benefits as a New Testament church. I will take you as my people and I will be your God, God says to Moses of the Egyptians. In 1 John 3, 1, uh, John speaks to us, look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children and we are. Finally, inheritance. God is promising Moses that he will bring him to the land he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and it will be their possession. They will have it. 1 Peter 1.4 speaks of an inheritance that Christians get that is imperishable, that is uncorrupted, and that is unfading. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will adopt you. And I will give you an inheritance, God says to Moses. Church, all these things are extended to us through a true and better Moses. The rest of Moses' life will tell this story in vivid color. The story of Moses will become synonymous with liberation and redemption and adoption and inheritance. But the story of Moses in all its color points to a greater story. It points to one who God would send to his people to deal with finality with their ultimate enemy. God is going to liberate his people forever. God is going to redeem his people, not just from human bondage, but from bondage to sin. God is going to adopt us. He's going to make something out of nothing. He's going to take us who are following the ways of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians chapter 2. And he's going to take us off of that path, and he's going to bring us into his family through the blood of his son, Jesus. And being adopted into God's family through Jesus' church, we have received an inheritance. We have been raised with Christ. We have been seated with him in the heavenly places that in the coming ages he might show the riches of his grace and mercy. We are heirs of all things because we are heirs of God. Jesus, church, has liberated us. Jesus has redeemed us. Jesus has adopted us, and being in his family, we have received an inheritance. How does Moses go on in the face of such disappointment, in the face of such immediate failure? He goes on because God promises it'll be worth it. He goes on because God promises he will have his way. Now Moses is going to share this with the people. Look with me in verse 9 just to kind of bring this all full circle and then we'll close in just a moment. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses. Is anyone surprised by that at this point? They didn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit 
in harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, verse 11, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. And we're on the same team, right? They're supposedly my friends and family, right? They haven't listened to me. So how then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. I am not even ready to talk. I can't do this. Verse 13. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. And then, sort of abruptly, and it rubs against our sensibilities, a genealogy is inserted. It's almost like you're watching a show and there's a cliffhanger, and then it's, we now break for commercials, you know? And it's this sort of commercial break in the text, but it's not accidentally there because God has brought Moses to the point where it's just not going to work. God has brought Moses to the point where, listen, I've gone to the Israelites. Things haven't worked out. Now I've got to go to Pharaoh, and this is not going to be pretty. People of Israel haven't listened to me. How is Pharaoh going to listen to me? But the Lord spoke to Moses, and the Lord gave them a charge about Pharaoh, and the Lord gave them a charge about the people that he's going to deliver. And then God's story that looks like it's coming to a screeching halt is just getting started. How do you fight through disappointment and life in ministry? Trust God's promises. Trust God's promises. He has liberated us from this present evil age. He has redeemed us by the blood of his son. He has adopted us into his family, and he has given us an inheritance. How do you get through those down seasons? You just keep pushing, believing God is who he says he is, and he'll do what he says he'll do. John Newton is the author of Amazing Grace, and when I was uh, studying in England with my seminary, we got to visit his church and sing Amazing Grace in his church, and it was just a powerful, powerful experience. And, um, he is an interesting man, um, sort of being this child of Christendom and being sort of a part of, of the slave trade and uh, all this sin that was going on in his time and place in, in England. And then sort of later in life, he has this this come to Jesus moment where he realizes that, that he can't separate his, his love of God and his love of his brother. And he realized that going along with his culture and just being sort of a cultural Christian in his day was, was uh, unsatisfactory. It was not going to meet the demands of their day. And so he teams up with a guy named William Wilberforce, right? And then, then eventually they are the ones who, through Parliament, bring down the slave trade in uh, the British Empire. And so Newton's a fascinating fellow. He tells a story about... Uh, Christians enduring trials, and he himself went through many. He says, imagine a man who inherited a really, really, really large inheritance worth millions and millions of dollars. He's journeying to, we'll just say New York City, right? He's journeying to New York City to, to get the, the inheritance, to make it legal, whatever, to receive it. He's a mile out, and his carriage breaks, right? A wheel snaps and he just starts crying, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. How can I go on? This is terrible, my carriage is broken. He says, what a fool he would be to just stand there. What a fool he would be to cry about the fact that his carriage is broken and not just press on for a few more minutes because he is almost there. 
Christian, his point is, we have but a few miles to go. We have but a few miles to go. Some of you, that's great, that's encouraging, but some of you are so, so down, and this may not be many of you, but I felt compelled to share because I think it's somebody. Someone's so down, it's not even encouraging to hear, oh, you just got a little longer, you know, just got to hold on for one more minute, you know, one more lap, one more time. That's not encouraging to me. I'm not pumped about that. Perhaps this quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon will help. He said in a Sunday evening sermon, some cannot receive Christ because they are so full of anguish and are so crushed in spirit that they cannot find strength enough to, of mind to entertain a hope that by any possibility salvation can come to even them. The mere struggle to exist has exhausted all their energy and destroyed all their hope. I do not wonder, he says, what a great many are unable to receive the gospel in this city of ours because their struggle for existence is awful. Spurgeon says, how many people are not ready to receive the gospel because their lives are just so hard? I'm afraid that it gets more and more intense, though. Even now, it passes all bounds. And a couple hundred years later, he's not wrong. It does get more intense. If any of you can do anything to help the toil-worn workers, I pray you do it. If you can do anything to help the people who are down on their luck, if you can do anything to help the people who are struggling so hard, I I pray that you do it. And yet, dear friend, if such a one has come in here tonight, I pray you do not throw away the next world because you have so little of this one. If that's you this morning, if the struggle is real... (laughs) so to speak. And it's hard to even hear of a hope in Christ. It's hard to even hear of liberation from sin. It's hard to even hear of redemption, right? Of things being made right. It's hard to even hear that you've been adopted or you can be adopted into a family, an eternal family, that all things will be yours because you will be joined with Christ. If that's you, don't throw away the next world because you have so little of this. This is sheer folly. If I have so little here, I would make sure of the most hereafter. Moses is going to struggle for a moment. The genealogy will happen, and then over the coming chapters, things are going to pick up. Moses... He's going to lead this great movement, right? God will show that Pharaoh's authority is limited. He will show that Pharaoh is not who he thinks he is. And Moses will experience the power of God. But Moses must move forward believing the promise of God, church. And if we will experience the power of God in our lives, we have to step forward in faith of the power of God or the promise of God in our lives lives. Believing the promises of God sustains us through seasons of trial and suffering. Church, we have but a few miles to go. Worship team, if you guys would come on up, and I will uh, lead us in prayer as we close out our morning. Would you pray with me? Father, um, we are thankful for your word that speaks to us in every season of our life. I think about Moses 
in the text today. And Moses has taken this step, and, he, and, he, and perhaps he expects things will go a certain way, and then they don't. And God, in my life, um, as a follower of Christ, I have taken steps of obedience that I thought you'd called me to, and then I've, I've fallen flat on my face. And I, I don't think, Lord, I'm the only one who's experienced this. Lord, we have an enemy who is prowling around us, who wants to pull us from your love, who wants to keep us from your heart, who wants to keep us from doing the things that you have called us to do. And Lord, stuff happens in our lives, and we don't know why it happens. And like Moses, we can come to you and just say, God, why am I here? What are you doing? How can you be good and allow these things to happen? And Lord, just like you did for Moses, rather than just answering all of our intellectual questions, would you help us rest in your promises? Would you remind us that you're a covenant-keeping God? Would you remind us that you love us as we sang that those you save are your delight? Would you remind us of all that Jesus has done for us? Would you remind us that we've been liberated from sin? Would you remind us that we've been redeemed? Our greatest problem, our sin problem, has been dealt with by Jesus. Would you remind us that we've been adopted into your family? That anything that happens in our life has been allowed by a Father who loves us and who will see us through. And Lord, would you remind us of our inheritance? Would you remind us of what you have in store for us? Would you remind us that one day soon we will see your face and every tear will be wiped away and we won't matter based on how much money we make. We won't be valued based on what we can do for other people, but Lord, we will all be yours. You will rule with justice and equity, and all will be right. Lord, as we go through seasons of doubt, seasons of depression, seasons of disappointment, help us listen to your word over our feelings. Lord, we believe that the reward for following you is you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.